Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. Today, we're going to be talking about the science behind our yes. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I believe that leadership creates strategic advantage and is a key lever to creating the world that we want to inhabit. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. I am delighted to have back on our show, Jim Ritchie Dunham. He is the president of the Institute for Strategic Clarity. So Jim, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Great to be here with you, Maureen, to share what we're learning around abundance and what is our big yes in our agreements. Um, So I am affiliated with me and I teaching at Boston College in the business school, at Egade Business School in Monterey Tech in Mexico. I'm teaching with the UPM, the Polytechnic of Madrid. I'm affiliated with the research efforts at Harvard in the School of Public Health. Written a couple of books, Ecosonomics and Managing from Clarity, around strategic thinking, systems thinking, and these abundance-based agreements we'll be talking about. I blog regularly at jlrd.me. I have an undergraduate in engineering, a couple of masters in international management and MBA, PhD in decision sciences, and a couple of postdocs from MIT and Harvard. And we're trying to see that people have an, a preference of, of abundance-based agreements to scarcity-based ones. And then what does that mean for what we do and how we go about doing that? And that all came about from my work. I've been a professor for 28 years, and so I get to hang out with people who run organizations. And we started to discover is this question of thinking of your organization strategically and systemically, which was sort of my focus, is are you actually doing things the way you want and having the impact that you want. And we started to find groups that were doing extraordinary things. And we started to try to understand why was it extraordinary? And basically it comes down to, and what we can explore is what we call the endowment effect in business and strategy. It said the reason they're so successful and so amazing is because they were endowed with something special, right? So they're Olympians. They're either more beautiful, they're smarter, they're richer, they're better educated, they have just better resources. And what we found in these groups that were extra extraordinary was that they were very ordinary. They weren't better looking, they weren't richer, they weren't better educated, yet they were getting far better results and far more engaging. So then what in the world are these folks doing that makes them so interesting and so engaging and get much better results? And that's what we were interested in exploring. And those kinds of questions are exciting to me and it takes me all over the world. So we've been doing this work in 43 countries, all over the United States as well. And I'm doing survey research in a lot of places with a large network and getting to meet and work with folks like you. So, Thank you. And I always love our conversations. So on today's session, every one of us has a yes that aligns with our purpose and our unique contribution with the impact we can generate and experience we can have, which is ours to choose. So our yes always generates a net positive and our no always generates a net negative value. And these are our choices. So Jim's going to join us today to talk about and explain the science behind the idea of determining our yes. Jim, in the intro, you talked about agreements and abundance and the science behind that. So before we talk about the yes in our agreements. Can you give our listeners a little bit more about your work on agreements? What does that mean? Because I think many people come to the conversation with a different understanding of agreements than you may mean. 
Right. So people often think, oh, agreements are these legal things that I've signed, a letter of agreement, those things. And what we're trying to find are words to describe in different cultures, even within our own country, you know, whether I'm an accountant or a lawyer, whether I'm working at the manufacturing floor level to C-suite, what am I used to speaking about? And there are, there's all kinds of jargon all over this. So what we've evolved into is this idea that we've agreed to something, whether we're conscious of it or not. So we're shifting from saying, well, I agree to that, meaning that I consciously know what I'm saying yes to, to I'm in a set of interactions that are guided by something. So an agreement from the original word of where it comes from or an accord just means that there's a connection. So it's an interaction. And we are in an interaction with ourselves, with others, with groups, with everything all of the time. And the question is, do we know what the principles are that guide that interaction? And so we just call that whole thing agreements. And because what they discover once you get into the sociology, the cultural anthropology, the political science and the economic sciences of this, is you discover that we have accepted, signed off on a whole bunch of guides to the way that we interact, the whole bunch of agreements that we never are aware of. And I give a very simple, obvious example. Whenever somebody loads a new piece of software or you buy a car or something, there's a whole long sheet of stuff that you say, and do you agree to this? And I would suggest the finding is that most people, if not almost everybody, doesn't read all of that stuff. So there's a whole long list of legal things that you've said yes to. But it's the same thing when you take out a coin out of your pocket and use it. You're accepting the agreements. And how do we know that? Because if you try to create your own currency, you can go to jail. If I walk into somebody else's house without their permission, I can go to jail. They say, if you don't believe in taxes, try not paying them, right, and see what happens. So there are a whole bunch of agreements all over the place that you've accepted. And the question is whether you've consciously chosen them or unconsciously accepted them. And then what does that do to how you're able to engage and do things in the world? And then that leads us to the question is, are those aligned with what you actually wanted? Or have you somehow unconsciously accepted a whole set of agreements that if you were to be aware of, you would choose differently? Now that we know that we are consciously accepting these agreements that we swim in, that they are everywhere. As you say, my house is protected in theory that someone can't just walk in. And I accept a set of agreements every time I get on the road to drive a car. So what is a yes in our agreements? So the yes is got a couple components. The first one is what am I saying yes to? So there's a future that I'm saying yes towards. But what is that purpose? And is it my purpose? And so the insight here is your interaction is always guided towards somebody's yes. And the question is, is it yours? Did you choose this and do you agree to align your efforts towards that future? And the other part is, are you saying yes to engaging your energy and the energy that's available in the room? So if everybody is bringing this extraordinary amount of creativity, which we'll explore a little bit, Then if we give our yes and we give it consciously as individuals and as a group, then most of that energy can come through and we can actually generate, interact in a much more beautiful, harmonic, vibrant way that's much more engaging and we can have much better results or we can shut that down. So in simplicity, the yes is a yes to human creativity, a yes to impact, a yes to love, a love for the future to which I give my will. So that's what's sitting in our yes and our agreements. 
how do we know what our yes is? Because as, as you said in the intro, we agree to a bunch of stuff that we don't know. I am guilty of being one of those people that if I don't accept the agreement for Google, it means I don't get to use Google products. So it doesn't matter if I like the agreement or not, because I'm guessing if I send them a message and say, hey, would you change this in your agreement? The answer is go someplace else. Right. So how do I get to know what my yes is? Perfect. What's that process? My degree was in decision sciences. And most people don't know what that is. They go, there's sciences around that. But they also know it as behavioral economics now or behavioral decision theory. And so there's behavioral law and behavioral economics and all that now. And what that is, is bringing behavioral decision theory into these different domains. And one of the first things that I'm doing in this is to say, how do we know what our yes is? And it's to connect two things that are disconnected right now for most of us, most of the time. That experience that you were just describing is I've disconnected what I'm thinking about what's going on and what it feels like in my body. And what does that mean? We know from different surveys across the United States and across the globe that most people are disengaged at work. And they know that they're disengaged. He said, yeah, I don't, I'm worse off because I was here today. I have less energy, I'm less excited, I'm less emotionally connected. I have fewer ideas. I want to just go vegetate somehow or medicate myself somehow. So I know what it feels like to not be giving my best or not be connected. And I know what it feels like to be in the juice, to be in the flow. So what we're reconnecting is that we actually know in our body sense, somehow in us, I know whether I'm at my best and whether I'm being invited to bring my best, whether this is something I'm really excited about and whether I'm not. So when we ask people, is this a yes for you or no? They're like, yeah, not really. Versus, oh yes, no, this is, I'm all over this. And it's exciting to start seeing what that is and that yes, right? Because it's not that, oh, this just feels really pleasant because it can be scary and exciting and learning and challenging, but there's definitely a, a feeling. So the question is, is what does that feel like in you when you're not engaged when you're not seen, when you're not appreciated, when you're completely replaceable versus when you know that you're seen, you're appreciated, and all of you is being invited. And, and does that feel different? And to finish that off, what's really cool, and this aligns very much with your work and the integral and all those kinds of approaches, is it's completely different in each one of us. And it's really easy to see what that looks like when it lights up in somebody's eyes. Right? You can look at somebody and say, well, you're lit up. You're here, you're in, you're engaged versus you are so not here. You're hating being here. So we know that. And what we're trying to do is to connect that, that you know when you're in a yes or no. And you can ask yourself and you can calibrate that. So you can ask yourself, does this feel like a yes or no? I'm going to put you on the spot for a minute yep. because this is your work. Yep. For you, how do you know if something's a yes or a no? How does that feel in your body? I've been very fortunate in my life to have many, I'd say, corporate experiences and relational experiences in different cultures to know what no feels like. I have a very strong allergy body. Oh, man. When I get shut down, when somebody comes at me in violence or trying to intimidate me or shut me down, I have a very strong allergic reaction to that. When I see that they're doing that to somebody else. I'm often very aware of that, right? So that is not right. And so it, it feels in my heart, a collapsing in my heart space, a feeling of I really want to be not here. That no has a very strong reaction. 
And then the yes is very simple because I can go inwardly. I've done a lot of practice in this, but I can go inwardly and say, is this mine to do? And that works really well for me because I know immediately that this is mine to do. And I say it that way because it doesn't feel it's my yes because, oh, this is super simple or because I've done this 100,000 times or it'll be easy. Rather, this is completely aligned with what's mine to do. And it's got all kinds of triggers and like toxicity and stress of this is very much not mine to do. It might be somebody else's to do, but it's certainly not mine. I don't want to be here versus I love this. So I love the question of, is it mine to do? And Jim, this may be because I studied with you, so it became my question as well as yours. And it really guides where I spend my energy, where I invest the limited hours I have in a day at work and personally. And there are a couple questions for me. Am I uniquely qualified to do it? And am I the only one who can do it? So I have taken on updating the Innovative Leadership Field Book. While I would love to delegate that to someone else, it's really mine to do. It's mine to do now because it's now 10 years old and we have created a body of work that we need to reintegrate to that. And to the point that what I know in my body isn't that this is going to be fun. It's going to be this is going to be valuable it's going to be time consuming. It's going to be frustrating. It's going to be all those things that writing a book is. And yet it feels inherently important. There is a yes. I don't know that I can say where in my body. Maybe it's in my head or my heart, but I know that it is mine to do and it is now. But I think the comment you made about mine to do doesn't mean I'm giddy happy like I'm going on vacation it's work and it's important and it feels a grounded sense of this is my opportunity to bring value into the world. Maybe that's the way I say it. It's bringing value into the world in the way that is mine to do. Right. It's a unique contribution that I can make. And somehow I know that it's mine to do. And as you said, whether I'm really clear where it is in my body, it's very much not in an abstract thought. So it's more of an alignment of checking in, to, that feels good, and I know I can do that. And we listen to you know a lot of the studies on happiness or flourishing. All that stuff shows that most of the time when people are actually really flourishing and happy, it's when they're doing something that for most folks would be quite stressful because I'm climbing a mountain or I'm jumping off of something or I'm doing this really hard project. We're made to be engaged, so it, being really happy doesn't mean sitting in front of a television doing nothing, but it's my will to give. And I'm giving it towards something that I see that's of value. And we know that. And we said, and I'm doing it and it feels really good. I'm exhausted at the end of the day because I wanted to be doing it. And I guess my simple way of seeing that is, and I'm ready to keep doing it versus I don't want to ever see you people or ever do this again. So that might be in our no or that we need to recalibrate how we think about it. So you mentioned the no that we know is equally strongly what a no is versus what a yes is. So in some cases, there are things that we would rather be no, but we need to shift to yes. And I'd say me writing this book, I'd rather it be a no, but it shifted to a yes. So tell us about the science of making that happen. Excellent. So shifting a no into a yes. And the first is to feel like, is it my head that's saying, yeah, I don't want to do that. But then if I look into, it's I actually do like doing that. 
Um, I get some value out of that, like going for a run when it's hot outside. I right? said, so I actually do like that. Um, so one is checking in to see, do I really, is this really a no or a yes? Then the second is to see, okay, no, that's a no. Um, I don't like this. And one of the first things I like to do and we suggest is to ask others in that situation, is this a yes for you or no for you? So if we think of an example as a team, and so we're working with a team at a textile manufacturer, one of the executives said, you know, this team is just really awful. We'd used our agreements health check survey, which is available for free online at the Institute. And they had taken and said that this group was very, you know, scarcity based and very much a no. And he looked around the room and says, is this a no for you or is this a yes? Do you like this team? And all of the executives around the room said, yeah, no, I hate this team. We try to avoid going to the meetings. We're never prepared when we get there. We never produce anything when we're in it. And they said, well, that's true. But we have that other team that they're also leaders of that we really like being in. And we're super creative and we always show up and we never miss that meeting. He said, and it's us. And so in that case, they were able to say, wait a second, we've got a no here and we've got a yes here. And it's us and it's our company. So why in the world are we doing it that way? And they'd never asked themselves the question. So he said, well, don't we have to? He said, no, it's our team. So one of the first steps is to ask the question is, is the no because we're not doing what we know we could be? And we're not doing it the way that we know we could be. So we're not delivering and we're not having fun doing it. And could we? The one caveat I want to have there is there are a lot of situations that people are in in life that are not safe to question or they don't feel safe in asking that. So I'm not suggesting that for now. And that requires a different level of skill set or colleagues around you. So if you're in a place where you're going to get beat up or, you know, a violence of some kind and you're not ready to take that on, I'm not suggesting that. I am suggesting it when you're with your best friend and say, you know, I don't really like how we're having these 10 o'clock in the morning calls. Do you like them? And they go, no, it's not very much fun. He said, could we try something else? Sure. So part of it, that first step in the science of this is asking the question of what are we experiencing? And is this part of our yes or is this not something that is? And then what would a yes look like? So what we're setting up is a gap between, and so this is a gap analysis. He said, what is it that we know that we want to do or that we could achieve? versus what we are achieving and how we interact, how we engage, the level of the experience that we're having, and the outcomes that we're achieving. You say what we're doing, how we interact, how we, the experience of doing that together and the outcomes we're achieving are definitely a no for me. I don't like doing this. And maybe we could. I mean, so there are two options here. One is to say, you know what, I don't like doing this and it's not mine to do and I'm not going to do it. Somebody else is going to have to do it or it's not going to be done. Another is to say, okay, well, I want to do this. It needs to be done, but the way it's being done, the assumptions underlying how we interact and the experience and the outcomes aren't appropriate. So then this is the trick that we found. I actually learned this from a Bolivian farmer, which was amazing, because when I asked him how he found this secret for having very fat cows, how did you get such fat cows compared to everybody else? And he said, well, they would ask me that. And he said, But the answer was, I don't know what you know, and I don't know what you don't know. So I can't tell you what the answer is, but you can come visit and see. And so that really shifted how I thought about that, the question of what does the yes look like? So if we're experiencing a no right now, we want to shift it to a yes, and we're clear that we want to shift it, and we know that it has different experiences and outcomes than the ones that we're having, the critical step is to realize that we probably don't know 
what the agreements around how we interact look like to achieve what we want. Said another way, if we knew how to do it better, we'd be doing it better. We'd be doing it the way that we want and we're not. So then the question is, what would it look like to do what we want, to have the kind of experience that we want and to get the kind of outcomes we want? And so can we compare that to another group where we are experiencing, having the kind of experience we want and the kind of outcomes we're desiring? So then we can ask the question, what are they doing that's different than what we're doing? So like in the, that textile manufacturing group, they were able to say, wait a second, this group is great and it's the, the three of us and there's this group that's awful and it's the three of us. What are we doing different over there than we're doing here? And then we can come back and look at our own to see what we need to shift in our agreements. And that's very different than what we typically do. To finish that idea off, what we tend to do is to say, well, let's just go try something different. But we're coming from the mindset that we already have. And that's what's been generating the no that we're experiencing. So it sounds like first is I have to acknowledge that we are in a relationship with agreements. And often, at least in my coaching, I see as people are interacting, they have different agreements. They think they're in agreement, especially as we onboard executives, we bring new teams together. We come together with assumptions about the agreements that we've never been explicit about. It's probably why the divorce rate is 50% in the U.S. We come together even with people we think we love, and then we don't because we have made assumptions about how relationships work across the spectrum. Families, businesses, soccer teams. Soccer teams may have better standards of rules than the other things do. I first have to question the agreements. And one of the other things you talk about so eloquently is that if I define what exceptional looks like, not good enough, but what is a really good relationship? What is a really good team? What is a really good executive group? How do they behave and how do we feel? And most of us have had those positive relationships everywhere from visiting my grandparents because they cared about me and because I felt special to a sports team where I was the worst one on the team, but I was valued for something I brought. It doesn't have to be because I'm Michael Jordan that I'm valuable to the team. Hopefully I'm not the worst one on the team most of the time. This was 10th grade track. But finding the space to have the discussion and using that as the stepping off point And I know I'm doing this with a lot of my clients now. What's our possibility as the leadership team? Because we can only create exceptional results if we don't hate being together and if we actually trust and support one another. And that would seem to be common, but it's amazing how many really good people don't love being with each other. Two other critical points you bring up, you bring up many, but two of the critical points. One is, do we even know why we're here Do we have the same understanding of why we're here? As I do informal surveys, mainly meaning that I'm sitting in the room and ask, what do you think the purpose of this meeting is? Write it down, both the overall meeting period and what we're supposed to be talking about before we start. You're not going to be surprised, but most people think they're in a different meeting and they weren't clear at all. Often like 10 to 20% of the people aren't even supposed to be in that meeting. They're in the wrong meeting. But they don't even leave because they don't want to disrupt people or something like that. Yeah, but you're not participating and it changes the energy. We're not in agreement of what we're trying to do. They say, you know, bringing different agendas and stuff, but we're not actually talking about the same thing. 
which is why in the soccer example, it's a bit easier because it's very explicit and there's a very specific goal, literally. There's what professional looks like that we're very exposed to. We're not exposed to what professional and excellence looks like in most meetings. But the second thing that's really important and I think links a lot to the work that you're doing in the Leadership Institute is the developmental question of what am I ready to take on as a group, as a leader, to shift my no to a yes? And how do I know that? And what I believe in observing in our research is that whenever we have an external expert come in, it's what the Bolivian farmer told me. He said, I don't know what you know, and I don't know what you don't know. So I'm not going to try to tell you what to know, but you can come see what you observe and what I do. And I found that to be really important in the wisdom traditions, they call it an initiatory process. But basically, you know, we take a client and say, go visit this team. What did you notice about how they performed? He said, oh, I love that group. They're amazing. He said, what did you notice? Because if you tell me what you noticed, then you told me what's already available in you to enact. But if I tell you what I can see and think that you should enact, I don't know whether it's obvious to you or it's so far away in your developmental pathway that you're never going to see it. But you didn't see it, so you don't know that you could do it. But if you notice it, he said, yeah, they did this really cool thing. What was that called? Oh, they asked questions. You know, the shock. <laughs> And he said, oh, yeah, there's this whole school called Inquiry. Oh, that's really cool. He said, I'm glad that you noticed that. But they didn't notice the co-hosting or they didn't notice the colors in the room or these other things, right? So anyways, the point is to give people the experience of what that experience that they want to have looks like so that they can show us what agreements they're ready to take on. I attribute a lot of cultural failures to somebody else telling me what I should do. And that's your example, like with marriage or kids. And when you tell people you're going to have a kid or you're doing something, everybody has an opinion and they're all useless because they're not in my context. And 99% of them aren't asking about what I see in my context. They said, oh, you got a kid. You should do this. Is it? You haven't asked me any questions, so you don't know what I'm doing. But if I can go and say, I saw that person doing that thing with their kid, I'm ready to go try that tomorrow. So I think those are the two things is what is the purpose that's organizing our yes and are we aligned on that at all? And are, what practices do we do to that? And second, what is it that I see that the higher performing group is doing that calls my attention that said, I am ready to go try that tomorrow? And I would add one other thing, and it's something that you bring out beautifully in your research. That higher performing group, they're not necessarily more well-educated, better funded, any of those things most of us have had the experience of being in a group or a family or a community that was incredibly supportive. And we can pull forth what that was that for each of us we require. And it's different. Now, I've got some clients who will say, I really need to be acknowledged. I have others who couldn't care less. They just want to go off and do good work and don't talk to me is the biggest reward they get. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to deliver you something that's exceptional. And the reward is, let me go do something else. A celebration of my accomplishments is torture. So for each of us, back to the inquiry, understanding our colleagues, which seems like such a simple thing, and yet we make an assumption that others are like us rather than asking. Exactly. We don't want to be treated like a cog in the machine. And when we do what you just said, we're treating everybody else like they are. And that turns out to not work very well. 
I want to shift now to a little bit of the science. So you've talked about researching and teaching at Boston College and Harvard and Madrid and Mexico. So you have a global perspective. You're not just a Boston guy. Well, you are also a Boston guy. I think you got one of your advanced degrees in Spain. Yes, master's in Barcelona. So the reason I say that is that your work touches multiple continents and multiple cultures. In that context, can you share with our listeners more of how you came to this work? What's the science behind it? The science that I'll talk about, we've written about this in some books, the Ecosonomics, Managing from Clarity, and working on a couple more right now, and a bunch of articles that people can find at the Institute for Strategic Clarity. We've also done survey research in 125 countries now, um, over 100,000 responses, people describing their agreements in different groups. Also field work now in 43 different countries, some in Africa, almost all of Latin America, North America, all of Europe, and a little bit in Asia. What came out was us looking at these questions as I started with, what does great strategy look like? What does systemic strategy look like? What do people look like when they're doing really well at this? So this is in the early 2000s. I started getting called in to say to study groups that were called weird and lucky. And it was the, the two words I kept hearing across language groups. Yeah, there's this group and they're just really weird. Um, so we were wondering if you could go study them. I said, well, why would you want me to study a weird group? They said, because they're getting just these extraordinary results and they're getting them year after year after year. So it's a community health center in Laredo, Texas. It's a toy store in Moscow. It's a dental training school in Las Vegas. It's a textile mill in North Carolina. And they're just off the charts. They get far, far better results than everybody else. And when we went to study them, and these are big foundations, big universities that were doing this, they said we couldn't figure out what they were doing. And when we asked them, they couldn't figure it out either. And that to me was what was interesting. They say, well, we're really committed. You say, yeah, everybody that does this work is really committed. That doesn't show why every year you're getting much better results. So then we figured it's because they had a lot more money or they had a lot better facilities, or that, but they didn't. So they went and visited and figured that out. So the field research on this is going and meeting groups and looking at them and saying, what is it that differentiates you from other groups? And part of that is in the outcomes that they have and the impacts that they have. And as we started to explore that, we'd say, like in the textile company in North Carolina, we'd ask other people in the industry and in their geography, do you know about this group? Like, oh, yeah, no, we've known them for decades. They said, have you ever gone and visited them? Oh, yeah, no, they're just amazing. And that was a very interesting question for us in strategy is if they're far better than you are, like you gave the example of Michael Jordan, right, or Tiger Woods, and they're getting far better results and it's very public, then why aren't you copying them? And this is what sort of triggered us into the research we're doing, because that's sort of the obvious thing. You find somebody like a Toyota that's doing amazing things and you go figure out what they did and you start doing it. But maybe they didn't copy them because they've been successful for 20 years. When I said, what do you mean they're lucky? They said, yeah, they've been doing this a long time. I said, well, how long? Like 20 years. I said, that's not lucky. That's sustainable. So they have a sustainable competitive advantage. So why aren't you copying them? Because they won't let you visit. It's IP, you know, that kind of stuff. They said, no, no, we've all been visiting them. We know what they do. I said, then why aren't you copying them? And they said, well, that's where they're weird because we tried it, but it didn't work. And that is very interesting to me is that how can smart people that are well-resourced, that know what somebody else is doing, try it and it didn't work? Because in a lot of things it does. But in these cases, we kept hearing that story over and over and over again in these groups. 
And so that led us to questioning what it was that they were doing. So then with the research and going in and looking at the evidence for what they're doing in their economic way of thinking about what resources we have or their political decision-making processes or their value structures, doing a values analysis or looking at their social interactions, doing network analysis, these kinds of things, trying all those tools. One of the things I discovered pretty quickly was they weren't doing any of the stuff that I was teaching in the business school. So I thought, oh, good, I get to show up and be really smart. So I said, well, let me tell you about performance management or the latest thing and, you know, whatever it is, scorecards. And I go, performance management. He said, do people still do that? Performance reviews? And I said, oh, yeah, let me tell you about the, you know, benchmarking or performance reviews. He said, people still do that? I said, you don't do that? They said, no, you do? I said, well, what do you do? I mean, if you're so successful, what are you doing? And what I discovered was that they weren't doing any of the things that we teach in the school of business administration or public administration or public health, yet they were super successful. So then that led me to what assumptions am I bringing in that I can't see what they're doing and they can't? Because the fact is, like with my Bolivian farmer colleague, it's a, it's a fat cow. And so you're doing something. You're getting these extraordinary results, these outcomes, this profitability these error rates that are far lower than everybody else, far higher profitability, you pay your employees far more, all those kinds of things. So the results are there. The impact in your industry is there. You've done this for 15, 20, 30 years. So you must be doing something different than everybody else. But I can't explain it. And that's where we realized that the assumption that I had underlying all of our processes that we teach in the business school was around an assumption of scarcity and what we count now call accepting a no. That's just reality. And said in the world is scarce and they didn't have that assumption. So I started with the idea then, is said, what would happen if you start from a different assumption? So I just asked, what if we started with the assumption of abundance? Which aligned more with my own inner practice and, and some of the things I was working on with the integral community and, and colleagues like you. And then we started to discover if you change that assumption and the very basics of what you see from an economic perspective of how much resource we have, if you look at how people make decisions instead of from a scarcity base from that there's plenty, if you look at what do we value and how we use our values from a cultural perspective, and how would I look at my interactions, all of a sudden the whole world showed up differently. So it helped me see from a research perspective of what we were looking for. We used different practices and all of a sudden, starting from a different assumption, the mathematics changed, the geometry changed, the processes that we were looking for changed, the way we asked the question changed. And then all of a sudden, all these practices and processes started showing up. One, two, they were able to see them more consciously because they didn't know what they were doing that was different. And they said, your performance review process is completely different than what everybody else does. So like in this company, you know, they called it a growth and compensation conversation, which was a continuous conversation. It wasn't a six-month performance review. It was just completely different. They said, oh, now I can see it. And how did you get there? Because you see the world differently. And how do you hold your meetings? Well, they call it co-hosting and they don't call them employees. They don't ever call them employees, right? So it's listening for how they do it, having this framework and working through those different lenses of the economic, the political, the cultural, the social and decision theories to say they're doing something different here. This is what we see that's different. And that helped them see themselves. That helped us find them and understand them better. And then they could also start to shift themselves. So that was, you know, using survey research, we're able to find these groups and identify where you are on this range from a deep no to a big yes. And where are you on that continuum? 
and what kinds of agreements. So we know what the different stages or levels look like now or start to look like. So what questions to ask to go see them. So we can do that through the survey research as well as we have over a thousand groups now that we've gone and worked with in, in all these countries to say, what does that look like in practice? And then because we also do a bunch of initiatives, we get to go try those things and see what works. So that's a little bit around, you know, some of the science. And again, we've shared that in books and people can find the books and videos of the stories of the projects and stuff on the Institute for Strategic Clarity site. So as you talk about things like performance appraisals, my tendency is to say, oh, if that's better, I'll go do that thing. And yet your work looks at the systemic view that I can't just pull their performance appraisal out and drop it into a different context because it will be an abysmal failure. And I can't just stop doing scorecards in an organization in which a scorecard is an integral part of how they communicate. So can you talk about the part that you call harmonic? You talk about either the four lenses or the five lenses, depending on which prism you're looking through and how those move together. To your first point, yes, you can't. The lesson learned from the Bolivian farmer was, I don't know what you know how to do and what you don't know how to do, but you can come look and see what I'm doing and see what makes sense to you to try. So what I've been doing is taking people to visit them and watch one of these performance reviews compensation conversation and say, what did you see? What did you notice? Could you see trying that? So using the agile framing, it, this is pilot testing, go try something. What is a small change you can do and go try something and see if that works. And then maybe come back and see what you notice now that you tried something. The evidence is there that it works. And what is the evidence that we're looking for? And the four lenses and the five relationships that you pointed at, that we look through the survey and the evidence we're looking for is we're talking about one experience. And part of the challenge is that in seeing our agreements is that there's a whole bunch of stuff we've agreed to, like in that long legal thing that you sign whenever you buy a piece of software that you're not paying attention to. And part of that is an assumption around what resources are available, called the economic question. How are decisions made in this system? Who makes them? Um, at what level? The political question. And who gets to enforce those decisions? And why do they get to enforce that? And what are the values that we're using, which is the cultural question, and then how do we interact, which is the social question. And what we find is the level of which you do that is consistent across, across those four lenses. So if you see economics, do you see it? Is it only in the tangibles that are here right now, the things that I can touch? Or am I also very much around what we're learning and developing and capacities? And so mentoring is really important and learning. And we ask a lot of questions around what have we learned today and what's different and shifting. Or are we also into potential and seeing new horizons and what's different in the future? If we're moving across those three domains I was just talking about from sort of things only or the tangibles or the outcomes, the already finished, to we're also paying attention to learning or developing and becoming, to we're also looking into our beingness and what are we really in service to and potential. We can look across those four questions and see similarities, similar levels of these are the kinds of resources that we have and we also value those. Right? So we have value structures that are similar to those levels of resources that we see. We make decisions based on things differently at those different levels, and we interact either competitively, cooperatively, or collaboratively based on which level that we're at. So that's one of the ways of starting to look, but there's a consistency or coherence to, to that evidence of if you really value those things, then you'll have resources available. So a very simple audit question, for example, is it says on the front wall when I walked in your building here in Manhattan that your people are your most important resource. 
So one clue is if you call people a resource, then you probably don't. Said another way, organizations and communities we found that deeply value humans and dignity, don't call them resources. One trick question I ask often in the executive suites is, so how many FTEs do you have, full-time equivalents? And if you can answer the question, then you're at one of these earlier stages or lower levels. They said, well, what do you mean? No, we're not. I said, so how many FTEs do you have at home? Like, what do you mean FTEs at home? I said, well, your kid, is it like a 0.2 or you know, 0.1 because they're kind of a waste or they're full-time equivalent? And he said, no, I don't think of them that way. They're family. I said, oh, because they're human. So we don't think of things a certain way. But if you say people are our most important resource and we're a learning organization, then I can look over in your resource site, your economic question, said, so then you have resources that show that you think about learning. So you'll have mentoring or you'll have, you know, ask questions. And so I can look at your agendas and see if you actually do that in your meetings. You know, my favorite question, you know, is it said, well, we do mentoring. And so that's really easy to check. He said, good. So who's your mentor? And there are three responses. Um, um, I said, you've already answered the question. You don't even know who it is. Or I said, Marine's my mentor. I said, good. Second question. How often do you meet? I think we met in March. You already answered the question. And the third answer is, well, do you mean when I'm talking about coaching for how I'm co-hosting this meeting? Because I talk with Maureen every week about that. And, you know, and then before I go in and then she'll be my swim buddy. We're in the meeting together and then we debrief it afterwards. Or are you talking about how I'm thinking about the financing part? Because, you know, Dan and I work on that together. And you know, I said, OK, you've answered the question. So it's all over the place in your organization. But the point is, is that you have... The resources, the economic resources are there, and you see that at those levels, and what you value is there, and how you interact is there, and how you decide are there. So anyway, so all of those are present at a similar level, and they're very different when it's at your no versus when it's at your yes, and that's part of what in this agile process is, well, I saw that, I can go try shifting that, and then I'll get the feedback from the universe of what else needs to shift, right? Because a lot of things will need to shift. That's what happens in cultural change, right? But I said... Oh, now I saw that. Now I can try again. So it's rapid prototyping or testing. You talk about the evidence, and I realize this is a very tactical piece, but you use a tool called the agreements evidence map. There is a structured process as you're gathering evidence to underscore the idea that when you talk about these agreements, they're not some amorphous thing that if I throw pixie dust in a room, they change, that there are in fact very concrete agreements that underpin how people act. And to your point, agreements show up with also processes, values, and economic resources to ensure that if I value being a learning organization, I invest money in training. People have a training budget and they have a training plan that's aligned with their career development plan, that there is a systemic approach at the later stages that reinforces these agreements that I say I have. If I say I value fitness, I have a bicycle that works. I ride it regularly. I look at my fitness watch every day and actually manage the steps I take. And the thing I say I agree and value, I put resources behind and time. I can look at your agenda of your meeting and it looks very different. He said, I value your learning. So I come into the meeting and the meeting is only me talking at you. He said, okay, that's not, that's not what that looks like. In a meeting, in an organization that's learning, he said, a bunch of the agenda is dedicated to learning and asking questions. And what have we learned? And discussion and, and surfacing all that, the surprises. 
versus talking at. So the evidence is all over the place and the kind of practices, the outcomes, the measurement, the agendas, even the simple agendas of, of how we gather. And part of the reason I bring this up is often people, and, and I know you know this, read articles or listen to a podcast and that sounds really cool and they want to go do it, but they lack the tools that your work has a very robust set of tools underpinning both the research of how you develop the framework and processes for others to implement it. So it's not a, that was really cool and, and there were fat cows in Bolivia, but how do I in my leadership institute create my version of fat cows or clients who are way better because they've worked with us? So I'm also an engineer by training. So I think a lot about what are the tools and processes that we're using to measure what towards what, and does that actually change how we interact? So as you said, in the Ecosonomics book, we describe the agreements evidence map, which allows you to say what evidence is there and what does it look like if you're thinking about only outcomes and the economic resource question or the decision-making question, the political or the cultural values question or the social interaction question. What does it look like if you have it at that verb or development or changing over time level or in the potential level? What do those look like? How common are they in your organization? We have the agreements health check survey, which is an experiential frequency-based question, right? So how often do you experience this kind of behavior and behaviors that are more towards the big yes versus a big no? And so he said, yeah, I never experienced that in this group. And it's across a bunch of different dimensions of how I experience it with myself, with another human being, with the group, with the creative process and, and where we see that creativity can come from. So it's checking it that way. We've also developed a thing we've been using the last few years and used now in hundreds of groups called the strategic scan. The strategic scan is looking at the agreements field with 10 different dimensions and each with a specific tool. And they're very simple, such as you say you know what your purpose is, good. Everybody in the room, write down what the purpose is. And is there any agreement on what you say it is? Second question, are we even working on the same purpose? What percentage of the time are you connected to purpose? Oh, yeah, everybody knows what the purpose is here. I said, first of all, we know in an hour meeting with everybody rushing to it from something else, they're still in that other meeting that they just came from or the traffic or the drive or getting ready or getting a coffee or whatever conversation. They're bringing that with them and they're still processing that for the next 15 to 20 minutes, unless you specifically invite them to shift gears. You survey people, they're still in another meeting. And I already said that 20% of people that I ask in meetings is that they're in the wrong meeting. They, they weren't supposed to be here. Somebody put it on their calendar. They weren't, they're not prepared or they didn't know that they were supposed to be there or they're in the wrong meeting, but they don't leave. So they're not participating either. Or you can say, we actually know what our purpose is. We remind ourselves of this is what we're connecting to. This is what we're in service today. This is the question we're asking so that we can ask, do we actually have the right people in the room? Do we, are we going to be able to explore this because we have all the right perspectives? And a very simple example that I love of that was a conversation I had. We were trying to decide in this you know, C-suite whether they could make money making this product. And they had a lot of experience. It was an old company. And they said, so who needs to be in this conversation? They're like, well, the engineer needs to be here because he's making the product. The marketing person needs to be here because she's selling it. And the accountant needs to be here because she knows whether we can make money with that revenue and that cost and our depreciation and tax base and all those other things. And said, good. So then we got the three of them in the room and they all participated and we could say, yes, we can sell it at this price. Oh, okay, well then I can sell that at that price and we can make it at this cost. 
And then with our structures and everything, yeah, we could actually make money doing that. And we could try this and do this. I said, so imagine now that the accountant um, came and didn't want to talk or had some insights and some ideas, but didn't say anything, which is what happens in most meetings. That insight was critical because that person has a unique perspective. Now, I lined it up so that it's obvious that this person has a unique perspective, right? So the engineer's perspective on what it's going to cost to make it because they're making it. Can I actually sell this thing because I actually know the consumers and how much like what the price point can be? And can we actually make money because I actually understand? So it was clear that we needed those three voices, like a three-part harmony. If we don't know what our purpose is, we're not asking the question of whose voices do we actually need to be in this room? And we call that co-hosting, but are you actually aware of the perspectives that are needed and are you actually bringing them in? We do a simple survey of how many creative ideas have you had in the last hour being in this room and what percentage of those did you share? And this won't surprise you. The number I usually get is zero to 10%. And then I ask, why didn't you share the rest of those? Because that's the reason you were here. And we paid to have you here because there was no space. They didn't ask. They didn't listen. They never do anything with what I say. I said, that's a huge cost to the organization. So what I'm giving is just a couple of examples with the scan we've started to get to. We can measure that. The purpose is present 10% of the time. We don't know what we're doing or that we're on purpose 90% of the time. Or we're always aware of it and we're always guided by that. And then it always guides, do we know who's supposed to be in the room? And are we really clear on that? And is everybody clear on what we need to listen to and what that standard of excellence looks like there? I don't need to be Marine because Marine's here. But I need Marine to be excellent. But that means I need to know what Marine's excellence looks like because it's different than mine. Right. So I don't need to be the accountant if I'm the engineer, but I know I need to know what accounting excellence looks like to know if she stepped up today and is bringing her best. And did we provide space? Because now I really want to know what you're seeing and thinking and I have to participate. So then we can have 100 percent participation. So anyway, so each one of the tools starts to look at how good are we at engaging? How good are we at transforming that energy that we've engaged on purpose with the right people, with the right insights and trust to share? And do we know what to do with that? Do we have the structures in place to be able to transform that into something? And then what you brought up earlier, can we transfer this to somebody else? Does anybody else actually want what we're providing? And this won't shock you, but it always surprises me. And it surprises me that it surprises me. Most organizations, when I ask two questions, do you know how much money you're making right now? You know, and they have 100,000 stores across the country. They can tell you to the penny how much money is coming in at any instant, right? They got the big SAP systems. I said, so how often do you talk to your customers? Oh, we do a survey every couple of years. So you don't have any clue whether they actually want what you're providing and doing it. And I said, but you have salespeople who are in touch with them all day long. Do you ever listen to them? He said, no. He said, so you have all this input to know we, we engage this energy, we transform it, but can we transfer it? Do they want what we're offering it and can they receive it in the form that we're offering it? And the only way to know that is to be in a constant evolutionary process with them. And most people don't have their customers deeply embedded in that process with them. But again, it's consistent across those levels that you called out earlier. When it's in the deep note, the answer to all those engaging, transforming and transferring questions is the same level. And it increases as it moves towards we're learning and developing over time and having outcomes versus we're into our potential and developing outcome. It's consistent across that. So those are just three of the different tools that we do have, as you said, 
from the science of this is measuring what are the agreements in the map. We have the survey to say, what are you experiencing? And then to scan a set of instruments to go look at how good are you at working with the energy, the agreements that are available within your community. You have gone into beautiful depth to make this more understandable for something that is a life's work. Obviously, you're not going to get an understanding in an hour. And you have created a couple of textbooks, a lot of podcasts and blogs. You're writing more. If someone were to look for one resource, what's the entry point to doing something with your work? Depending on how you're oriented, if you want to see videos, if you're more of a video YouTube kind of person, you can go to the Institute for Strategic Clarity and we have a YouTube channel. And there, there are a bunch of interviews of senior executives talking about this, or we have the consultants who've done a lot of this work talking about the projects and you can hear those in different languages. I also, in Spanish and English, have three minute snippets of me talking, being interviewed and asking about these kinds of things. If you're more wanting to read short things, you can scan like my blog at Jim Ritchie Dunham. I'm the only Jim Ritchie Dunham on the planet and jlrd.me. And there you can just sort of search by topic of the kinds of questions and just sort of follow through that. And there are a few hundred there. Um, or the book, Ecosonomics. I'm finishing up a book on agreements now called Agreements, Your Choice, much more entry level. And in the next couple of months, we're going to have onboarding documents, little onboarding courses that you can go through that have been developed in support by the Garfield Foundation on understanding your agreements and systems thinking from a strategic perspective and the scan thing I've been talking about. Jim, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. For our listeners, at this point in time where the world is changing so quickly, each of you are crucial in moving forward with your yeses and with your noes, knowing what is a no and taking action to either turn it to a yes or not doing some things. Feeling a no in your body and knowing when to leave a situation is in some cases as important as knowing when to stay and move forward. I do encourage you, if you're interested in Jim's work, as he said, he has a lot of resources. His work is incredibly valuable in shifting how individuals, teams, and organizations can work together and really drive significant results. So thank you for listening. Thank you for engaging with the work. Please share our podcast like them and listen again. Thank you. Thank you.